0: We're going to be in Luke 7 this morning. I'd like to read the passage to you, beginning in verse 31 of Luke 7, and uh, then we'll look at uh, what God's Word says to us today. Luke 7, verse 31 through verse 50. It's a bit of a controversy about Jesus' mission, who he hangs out with, criticism that's being offered to him, and this is his response. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you pray with me once more? Father, thank you for the gift of your Son because we find in your Son a visible representation of all that you are. For everything Jesus said and did was a perfect reflection of your nature. And I pray today, Lord, that we as your people, as we gather And consider your son in this story, we might see more about how he sees, and our eyes might be changed, and you might propel us with new eyes into the gospel mission, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm plan B apparently, Steve just told you that, Um, to talk about the gospel mission. And uh, today, specifically, I want to talk about your life and my life as part of the gospel mission. Well, what do we mean by the gospel mission? Well, very simply, it's Jesus died and rose again to redeem a people for himself, for his name. He came to seek and to save those who were lost, and he is doing that work through the church, through his people. That's the gospel mission. Now, just to say that might be troubling to some. It sounds awfully narrow. Uh, It sounds like we believe in absolute truth. Actually, it sounds like God's kind of stingy. There's only one way to get at it. But I think when we get done with this morning, you'll see that that is not the case at all. The gospel mission is what God is calling us into. I came to Rincon Mountain a few months ago, Uh, And part of my responsibility is spearheading for the PCA churches in Tucson in church planting and ministry on the University of Arizona campus through RUF. That is an expression of the gospel mission. And I imagine you have an update, but if you haven't, um, there's a wonderful unity among the four PCA churches here in Tucson, a wonderful desire to see the gospel advance through church planting, Uh, to see the gospel advance through a ministry on the university campus. And there has been an amazing provision of God. Uh, As I said to the Sunday school class this morning, uh, no, no sooner than I developed the profile for the planter and the RUF minister, no sooner did I complete the demographic research, made one or two phone calls when God dropped both men into our laps, just to make it clear it had nothing to do with us or my initiative. God had provided these men long before, and uh, they are now coming, Charles and Julie Garland, to plant a church in Midtown, uh, Dan and Brittany Smith to restart the RUF ministry at the University of Arizona. That's, that's God's encouragement for us in the gospel mission. But I don't want to talk about the plant in RUF today. I want to talk about us because it's it's easy for us as Christians to say, oh great, we got a planner, we got an RUF minister, uh, I can give, I can pray, and I guess that's it. No, it's, the gospel mission is not their work, it's our daily work, because God has called us to himself that we might join him in our everyday life in the gospel mission. Now, you know that, I assume. But Sometimes that seems very difficult. Uh, Maybe your to-do list is so long that when I tell you today that gospel mission is one more thing on your to-do list, you say, I guess I'll get to that at some point because right now I'm not even getting through all the things I have to do every week. Well, how, how are we supposed to engage in the gospel mission when we're so busy? Well, today I want to talk to you about how God is not so much, first of all, interested in changing what we do, but in what we see, how we see, how we look on the world. I call it gospel eyes. And this passage in Luke is the passage I've gone to over years to reflect on how God wants me to see differently and so cause me to engage with gospel eyes in the gospel mission. So we're going to take a look at the passage, walk through it. It's a pretty simple passage, pretty basic outline. Uh, The context is criticism of Jesus because he hangs out with sinners a lot. Uh, Jesus essentially says, yes, indeed I do. And now Luke gives an example of what we're talking about. So gospel lies, gospel mission. And this is a story of, first of all, a dinner with an awkward moment. Verse 36 says a Pharisee asked Jesus to come over for dinner. And Jesus went and took his place at the table. Now, it's a Pharisee. Now, most of us when we hear that word Pharisee think bad things. Well, that's unfortunate because the Pharisees have been given a bad rap. Uh, Pharisees were godly people. They existed to preserve holiness among God's people. They had a very well-developed code of godliness. Uh, They were very application-focused. Uh, Most of us, if we lived in the first century and were Jews, would want to be a Pharisee. They were the most respected people of the community. We're not told in this verse the man's name, but his name is Simon. And multiple times Luke reminds us that he's a Pharisee and his name is Simon, and that becomes significant. He He invites Jesus to a meal. Now, in the ancient world, a meal... It wasn't just hanging out it was it was a it it was a serious inclusion of someone in your life it was more than a social occasion it was an honoring occasion and in the ancient world when they ate a meal in this part of the world um, they ate in a common room of the house that actually had an outside entrance to it imagine a courtyard imagine your walled yard here in tucson but without a wall and in those days, people could come and go into that area while you were eating and watch you. Kind of creepy, but that was that was that was how they did it in those days. They had a different notion of privacy. So imagine you're in your backyard having a barbecue with your friends, no wall, and your neighbors are standing around looking at you eat. That's what happened here. And in this context, they didn't sit in chairs. It was a more Formal meal, so they actually laid down for a formal meal. They laid down on cushions, leaned on their left arm, stretched out their legs behind them, and used their right hand to gather their food. It's a dinner. Jesus goes multiple times to dinners in the houses of Pharisees. It's a dinner, though, with an awkward moment. The story of the woman who comes, who's a sinner, who hears that Jesus is there, and she comes because Jesus is there. She's identified as a sinner. That's a term of derision. It's repeated multiple times in the story, but unlike Simon, we don't know her name. Most commentaries think that she may have been the town prostitute. She represents the opposite end of the social spectrum from Simon. She's sold out to sin. She's nameless. He's named She's a sinner, he's a Pharisee, and as a sinner, she's unclean. What that means is whatever she touches, she pollutes. Her presence changed everything because she didn't just hang at the wall and watch. She approached Jesus and touched him. Notice how Luke tells you about this woman. He compounds a series of verbs in verses 37 and 38. She learned Jesus is at the house. She brought an alabaster flask. She stood. She wept. She wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed his feet. She anointed them with the ointment. This woman came with an intention. She's deliberate and determined in what she plans to do for Jesus. Because Jesus was unlike anyone she had ever heard or met before. In essence, this woman enters in and does what no one was supposed to do. She made a scene. One commentator describes it this way. She came with a precious jar of anointing perfume, fit for the head of a king. Standing there in silence, she weeps, and her tears of sorrow and gratitude warm her heart. And certainly not by intention, her tears wet the feet of Jesus. And the woman is driven into a new line of action as her tears wet Jesus' feet. There is no towel at hand, so she unwraps her hair to remove the tears from Jesus' feet. But this brings her into intimate contact with Jesus and leads to a release of affectionate gratitude expressed in kissing his feet, which have now been cleared from the dust of the journey. She loses it. And Luke describes this in a way that says she wept profusely and she kept wiping his feet with her hair and she kept kissing his feet. This was not brief. This went on for a minute or two while they're all reclined at table. She loses it. She feels shame coming into the home of Simon the Pharisee, powerful desire to hide herself, yet an inward compulsion to acknowledge Jesus as what she had found him to be. And together, all of that emotion erupts in tears of gratitude. Now, how does Jesus respond to this embarrassing moment? He's he's not disturbed in any way. He... He receives her tears of gratitude, her washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. She accepts, he accepts the kissing of his feet and the pouring of the ointment, and he gives no disapproval whatsoever. This is called an awkward moment. Now, what's interesting is the contrast between what Jesus is obviously receiving and what Simon is thinking. One of the really weird things in the Gospels is they'll tell you what someone is thinking and then how Jesus responds to what they're thinking. Imagine what that felt like. How did you know what I was thinking? Well, Simon is thinking something. And what Simon is thinking is if Jesus were the prophet he says he is, he would know what kind of woman this is, that she's a sinner and he wouldn't let this happen is the assumption. Simon is offended. Simon is offended that Jesus did not pull his feet in and shun this woman who's a sinner. Simon has no joy in this. He didn't burst into song. He didn't say, hallelujah, she's saved. He's embarrassed. He judges her. His heart is revealed in how he responds to this woman. And that leads to the second part of the story, a story. It's a story with a lesson in it. Simon's thinking thoughts of judgment and disdain towards Jesus, and Jesus answers him and his thoughts. And he says, I got something to tell you. And Simon respectfully says, tell it. And he tells the parable of the two two debtors who owe different amounts and both without price are forgiven freely. Jesus asked which one would love him more. Simon understands the one with the larger debt. And then Jesus compares Simon and the woman. See, in in that part of the world, washing the feet and the kiss of welcome and the anointing were not obligations. Simon had not breached any protocol here. He had done the bare minimum. It's sort of like going to somebody's house for dinner and not bringing flowers. You don't have to bring flowers or a gift, but it's nice if you do. Simon Simon had given the basic welcome that you would give to any common person. But Jesus contrasts the woman's behavior with Simon's. And next to the woman's behavior, who's the true host in the sense, Simon Simon is a cold-hearted host. See, to the woman, one author puts it this way, to a woman who three times is openly declared to be a sinner in the passage, and that was a very serious thing in the ancient world, Jesus does not breathe a word of judgment. But to Simon, who has not violated the law in any way, Jesus delivers a blistering denunciation. You gave me no water she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair you gave me no kiss she has continually been kissing my feet you did not my anoint my head with oil she has anointed my feet with priceless ointment and then Jesus turns and says not you're excused woman it's okay we all sin but no your sins are forgiven he does what only god can do which they pick up on he points out her great love to simon because her many sins are forgiven and he pronounces peace to her. Nobody saw this coming. This is not what anyone would have expected on that occasion. And Jesus says this amazing thing in verse 37. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I used to read that verse and say, well, I guess because I hadn't sinned a lot before I was a Christian, I'm just sort of doomed to a little love, love of Jesus. I wish I had a more dramatic testimony. I wish, I, I wish I'd done drugs and been immoral and, you know, maybe even blown up a few people. That, that would make my conversion really dramatic, and then I'd, then I'd have this great love for Jesus. Poor Simon, he'll just never love Jesus. No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, the problem, is saying, Simon, the problem is not that you have sinned little, but that you think you've sinned little. You, you think, Simon, you have a manageable problem. You think that because of your exceptional self-control and hard work, you're a righteous man. You, you think that you're good because you've worked hard at it, and therefore you're better than this woman who obviously hasn't worked hard at it, or she wouldn't be such a sinner. And therefore, you think that what I came to offer, which is free, unmerited, abundant forgiveness to no goods like you and this woman, you don't need that. See, this woman knows that all she's got is my free grace, and you refuse to empty your hands of your self-importance so that you can receive it. It's a stinging rebuke with one of those little barbs on it that Jesus has where you walk away saying, is he saying what I think he's saying? (laughs) Yeah, he is. Let's probe a little bit more because I find in this passage not an accusation that you and I are Pharisees, but I find in myself uh, that since no temptation occurs to me except what is common to man, there's a real temptation to think and see like Simon, to, to look on the world of sinners like Simon does. And I find that temptation especially strong when I've mostly been around Christians. Um, a temptation to moralize and judge and keep people at a distance. Uh, our, our oldest child went off to uh, Wheaton College many years ago and she'd been there a number of months, and uh, being raised in the home she'd been raised in where we had lots of friends outside the church and the faith. Uh, She'd been there a few months and we called up one day and she said, how are you doing? Fine, what are you doing? Well, I've decided to get a job. Well, Rachel, you don't need to get a job. You get a scholarship and you're alone and all that stuff. She said, I have got to get off this campus. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, when when it when Christians get together and it's only them they make up problems. <laughs> and I went, Yes, she gets it. <laughs> she was avoiding being a Simon. She went out and got a job at a restaurant in Wheaton and had a terrible boss. But it gave her perspective on what it was like to be on the Wheaton campus with all Christians. See, there's a temptation there, and you see Simon had an eye problem the, the the passage speaks about what he saw again and again he had a an eye problem he didn't see accurately he didn't he didn't see the woman accurately because he didn't see himself accurately because he didn't see his God accurately he He saw God as holy but grating on a curve, and therefore he was doing pretty well. He, he saw God as primarily interested in keeping himself uncontaminated by sinners. And therefore, Simon was right to be uncontaminated by the sinful woman. He didn't think of God as good and gracious in seeking the lost. He thought of God as avoiding and keeping away from the lost. And he had an eye problem. He saw with what I call moral eyes eyes that look look at people through morality or law as contrasted with gospel eyes. So let me just point out moral eyes versus gospel eyes. Simon, Simon believes God is holy, and he believes I'm pretty good. So what he sees is in this woman someone who doesn't measure up. She doesn't measure up because she needs to fix herself and try harder, and because she doesn't do that, he's going to avoid her. Because she doesn't try hard enough and she doesn't care about godliness, he has no compassion for her, so he closes his heart to her. See, the essence of his moral eyes are self-salvation, self-help, trying harder. The fruit of his moral eyes are judgment, distance, and anger. And the effect of Simon's moral eyes on a woman like this is bad news. She has no hope. Try harder, be good. She's way past that. She will never be able to rescue herself. Contrast it with gospelize, which you find in Jesus. God is holy and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what Jesus sees in this woman in Simon. But Jesus knows that God is generous in his goodness. And though he takes no delight in judgment, he provides a savior that he might seek and save those who were lost. And therefore, Jesus welcomes any and all And he opens the gate so we may enter. And therefore, this woman who comes, having believed the promise of the gospel and known him to be the Savior, is welcomed with joy and honored and not shamed by Jesus. See, it's an interesting story because Jesus asks Simon the question and gives the point of the illustration, and then he leaves it. You don't know what Simon's response is, but but in essence, what Jesus is saying to Simon is, Simon, the only thing keeping you from me as your savior is you think you don't need a savior. And the effect of Jesus' way of seeing this woman is the best news possible. That's why she comes with tears. Because the gospel is good news to the least, the last, and the lost. And when you see with gospel eyes, that's how you see people. So I'm always asking the Lord to take away my Simon eyes and help me see people with gospel eyes. So some reflections, further reflections. Um, What creates gospel eyes? As we think of gospel mission, how do we develop gospel eyes? Well, we think about what our God is like as revealed in his son. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ revealed in God the Son is not a God who waits for us to be interested but seeks us out. He is not a God who keeps distant from us but is willing to be called a friend of sinners. Think about that. God is willing to be called a friend of sinners. He is not a God who calls us to save ourselves because that is hopeless but one who saves us all by himself. That's the gospel. And as one author says, when I remember the Gospel, I know that Jesus came to raise the dead, not to improve the improvable, not to perfect the perfectable, but to, not to teach the teachable, but to raise the dead. And I was dead. Simon is dead, as dead as the woman. And I need to live in that reality and meditate on that reality because that helps me see everyone around me differently. I was, I was at a meeting recently where we were talking about how to respond when non-believers sin in front of you. And people had various views of, well, I, I would accept this kind of sin, but I wouldn't accept that, and I would rebuke them for this, and I would rebuke them for that. And somebody finally said, don't lost people act like lost people. And is the law the solution to their lostness? Then why are you telling them to obey the law? As though that's some kind of help. It's so easy to to miss the gospel and get it mixed up with law, with morals. Because the message sometimes, even to me, and perhaps to you, just seems too good to be true. Um... A couple of years ago, I read a, read a man who, who made this comment. He said, we read the verse, God commends his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we think that's good, but then we complete it. Here's, here's how we tend to complete it. God commends his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us on the condition that after a reasonable length of time will be the kind of people no one would have had to die for in the first place. I live that way. Grace, again, same author, grace operates by raising the dead. Those who think they can make their lives the basis of their acceptance by God need not apply. So these are all gospelized questions. Uh, Luke 14, you have a description of this generous God. And these are the things I meditate on so I don't see as Simon sees, but I see as Jesus saw. There's a parable of the banquet. The man gives a great banquet and invites many people. And you might know the story. The invitation goes out and people say, ah, I got to clean the house today. They've got relatives visiting, got a big dinner plan, got to prepare for it, got to make all kinds of excuses. And, G- and, and the, the banquet host says, go out into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and the blind and the name. And the servant says, sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master says, well, I guess that's good enough. No, that's not what the master says. The master says, go out to the highways and hedges and compel the people to come in, that my house may be filled. See, that's the heart of God towards the lost. Fill my house with the last, the least, and the lost. Again, quoting the point in that story is that none of the people who had a right to be at the proper party came, and that all the people who came had no right whatsoever to be there. The parable says that we are going to be dealt with in spite of our deservings, not according to them. Grace as portrayed here works only on the untouchable, the unpardonable, and the unacceptable. And when I believe that, it changes how I see and how I engage in the gospel mission. When I believe that God's grace is free and generous because of Christ, I see the people around me with gospel eyes. God did not ascend his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved, and that motivates me in gospel mission. Close with a story. A number of years ago, when we lived here in Tucson before, um, my wife and I had one of those small world experiences. We traveled to the Philippines, Philippines, to Cebu City, to be at a church that our church had helped pay the money to build. Uh, Preached in the church, got to see God's work in Cebu in this church. And one of the members of the church came up and said, where are you from in Arizona? And we said, Tucson. He said, I have a pen pal in Tucson. A Filipino had a pen pal in Tucson. We said, well, how'd you meet them? Well, they're from France. So a Filipino had a pen pal in Tucson. he was from France. And they said, would you be willing to drop in and see him? And we said, sure. He said, I'll, I'll let him know you're coming. So we came back into town and we got this, this lady's name. Her name was Laura. And um, we called her, this before email, uh, we called her on the phone. And we said, "Uh, Laura, we're so-and-so's friends, and they're your pen pal, and we'd love to come see you. And she said, oh, I'd love to do that. French accent, a whole deal. She's a student at the U of A, uh, international student at the U of A. So we loaded up our three kids in the station wagon or minivan. I don't know what we drove. It was a very family car. Uh, We drove down to the university, pulled up to one of those rental houses nearby, walked up to the front door, rang the doorbell, and a guy answered. was your boyfriend? They lived together. Not uncommon, but there we were with our three kids, all of the impressionable ages that they were, standing at the door with a man involved in an immoral relationship with the woman we came to see. That was a gospelized moment. What are we going to do? Well, we decided to see her as Jesus saw her and see him as Jesus saw him. And off we went in the car, they followed us over, we got frozen yogurt. I don't even remember if the place is open anymore. But we had a nice visit with them and, and uh, drove, went back and visited with them a little bit in their place. And then, then there was the question of, are we gonna continue this relationship and see them as Jesus saw them or see them with moral eyes? Gospelize, moralize, and we said, you know, God has brought about this contact, so we're going to invite them over for dinner. Well, to make a long story short, uh, Michael and Laura came into our house many times, and we would say to the kids, "This—you can tell how many years ago this was. This was unusual for them to know a live-in couple, okay?" And we would say to them, "They are not believers. This is this is how they live. They don't know God. This is this is a." part of their lostness, but we wanna love them and show them what Jesus is like and who he is. And our kids were like, sounds great to us. And and, uh, Michael and Laura came into our homes many times. They were there for the holidays. Uh, We had all kinds of discussions. He was into UFOs. He was absolutely certain there was life in other planets. We talked about UFOs. We talked about Jesus. We talked about French cooking. We talked about Jesus. We talked about all kinds of things, and we talked about Jesus. And they never responded while they were here. Then they moved. They moved to Florida. Uh, She was doing some extra classes over there. He moved with her. And while they were in Florida, they became Christians. And then they moved back to Tucson, and the first people they called was us. And she, she was a transformed person. He later said, I never really believed any of this and rejected but it was a gospel eyes moment. Will, will I bring people into my home and see them as Jesus sees them, even though their lifestyle is not the lifestyle I would want? They needed a Savior. They didn't need a lecture. They needed a family to welcome them into their life. They needed, need, I needed to lead my children in the gospel mission. And that meant loving and honoring and treating these people with respect in the name of Christ. That brought good fruit, doesn't always. It doesn't always. But if you and I are to be involved in the gospel mission in daily life, it begins with first what we see. How we see the people around us, your coworkers, your fellow students. Do you look on them in their sin and say, oh, that's terrible. Or do you look on them in their sin and say, They need a Savior. How can I build a bridge into their lives? God calls us all to see with gospel eyes as he once saw us in his generous grace. And as we do that, we will fall into the gospel mission. We will love and respect and honor people who are outside of Christ as we believe Jesus sees them and Jesus responds to them. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that, that you looked on each of us as we really are, not as we think we are. But you knew us as the lost and the least, the unpardoned. The people living in darkness, the dead who needed resurrection, and you did not shun us, but you gave your son for us, and you sent your spirit to call us, and you sent people to us, Lord, who saw us with the eyes of redemption, with gospel eyes. And Lord, as as we as churches uh, support and pray for the plant and the RUF chapter, I pray that uh, we as members of the PCA churches here would move into our worlds each week with, with eyes that see as you see uh, people who need a Savior, that we would see with gospel eyes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.